Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Before I even say hello to you, O'Toole, I just want to say we're very close to a big mile marker. You want to know what it is? Of course I want to know what it is. <laughs> okay, so we're 94 listeners short of having 30,000 listeners who listen to Screen Thoughts. And we appreciate each and every one. <laughs> okay, don't, if you have a friend, we're looking for 94 by the end of next week. If I have a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any more friends. <laughs> I know. My friends are over us. Trust me. But we've been doing this for a little over two years. And what a, I mean, I'm just so grateful and just want to say a big thank you. And what a big mile marker that is. Really pretty cool, actually. I love that. Good. Yeah. And I am just, I'm filled with gratitude. Okay. So anything on your end other than, I mean, I think we should just stick with my 30,000, but you go ahead. Do you have anything you want to add? Well, that was a very good piece Thank of you. news. So, yep. okay. My two pale in comparison, but I'm sure you saw where Netflix is going to give a second season to 13 Reasons Why. I know. I, you know, and I think there's 13 reasons why they shouldn't. <laughs> I think you might be right. Well, you know, it's sort of like why more is sometimes just more. And I keep telling people just embrace what you know, what you, which came from a book, and there is no follow up. I mean, it's just, you know, Godfather 3 is all I have to say. <laughs> yes, showrunner Brian Yorkie said, quote, We haven't heard everybody else's side of the story. So I am curious what they're going to come up with. But my other question for you I was wondering if you saw Emma Watson at the MTV Movie Awards, uh, no. where she won Best Actor for playing Belle in okay, Beauty and, and the Beast. Okay, you're telling me that to make me feel badly that I gave her a bad review. Emma Watson, Beauty and the Beast! Well, I'm sure you read all the hoopla around the fact this is the first time ever they had a gender-free category for Best Actor. Firstly, I feel I have to say something about the award itself. The first acting award in history that doesn't separate nominees based on their sex says something about how we <laughs> about how we perceive the human experience. MTV's move to create a genderless award for acting will mean something different to everyone. But to me, it indicates that acting is about the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And that doesn't need to be separated into two different categories. Empathy and the ability to use your imagination should have no limits. So Emma Watson stopped her award acceptance speech to run over and give a hug to presenter Asia Kate Dillon, who was really the force behind this new gender-free category. This is very meaningful to me, <laughs> both to be winning the award and to be receiving it from you, Asia. Thank you for educating me in such, in such an inclusive, patient, and loving way. And there was one other award winner that night that I'm sure you were rooting for all along. Taraji P. Henson won for Best Hero. Isn't that fabulous? <laughs> oh, yeah. I like that, actually. Yeah. And the movie. Tell everybody the movie. Hidden Figures. Yeah, uh, you know, I, as you know, I felt she really got. Um, well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna use. I'm gonna try to use upgraded language. I really felt <laughs> that she should have been in the award category uh, for the Oscars and for the Golden Globes, which she um, 
should have taken home. So I'm glad. Good for her. Yeah, best hero, male or female, yep. or anything and she's in between a hero. or beyond. Yep. Mm-hmm. Women rock. Yep. <laughs> or gender neutral people. <laughs> okay, well, we can't be gender neutral because this weekend is Mother's Day. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. And yeah. Hollister, you're a mother. Happy Mother's Day to mother. you. Yeah. <laughs> I am a mother. <laughs> And, but I'm not allowed to talk about her. So, you know, but I want you to know that I think um, on Mother's Day, I usually get up and think about why I'm grateful to be a mother and what great gifts my fabulous daughter Sarah has brought to me, even though she doesn't listen to our podcast. The one about whom you're not allowed to speak. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, but we, so we, of course, have to do six films uh, that celebrate and are our favorites uh, between about mothers. Just up front, I'm going to confess, I threw in one TV show. You still only get three. Okay, you want me to kick it off? Yes, by all means, kick it off. Mothers go first. Okay, I'm going to start with the movie Mother. Oh. By Albert Brooks, wrote it and starred in it with Debbie Reynolds. And, you know, it was the first time Debbie Reynolds came back since, I don't know, the 50s or 60s <laughs> or whenever she was big. And I thought she was brilliant in this film. And it's a funny movie that both my daughter and I often watch together. And we haven't watched it together in years. But there's one moment in time when um, when she says, I love you to Albert Brooks. And he says, I know you think you do. <laughs> and when my daughter and I say, I love you to the other person, the other one always says, I know you think you do. It's just filled with great nuances between mother and child. And Albert Brooks is genius in this. Absolutely genius. You know I'm happy to see you. <laughs> now, why didn't you want to stay in a hotel? It's just really one of the great films. Have you seen it? You know, I've never seen it, but I did see Carrie Fisher's Postcards from the Edge, where Shirley MacLaine played her mother on screen, and I really enjoyed that. Wait, are you slipping that in? Is that one <laughs> of your picks? I was trying to get partial credit for Debbie no, you're, Reynolds you're busted. being Carrie We're not even Fisher's going there, mother. But let me give you a little fun, a fun little tidbit, okay? Okay. Okay, so... Uh, Albert Brooks really wanted to use the song Mrs. Robinson in it. Now, Simon and Garfunkel had not allowed anybody to use the song for anything after The Graduate. So so Albert Brooks called Debbie Reynolds' daughter, Carrie Fisher, and he <laughs> said to her, since she'd received no alimony from her ex-husband, Paul Simon, Albert Brooks said, look, you know, your mother's in this film. It's her big comeback. Could you please call your ex and say, okay, didn't take any alimony, but I want the song for my mother's film. And he did it. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Where have you gone, Mrs. Robinson? No. Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? You know, thinking like that, that I'm sure could have just shifted Albert Brooks right into becoming a full-on producer. I know. <laughs> even, I mean, even that's funny, you know, so. I love you. I know you think you do. Oh, I have a call waiting. Hello. It's still me, mother. Hello. Still me, mother. Hi. Why do you even pay for this feature? There. Now, what's your first go around? Okay, I am going to choose Lauren Bacall in The Mirror Has Two Faces, where she played oh, Barbara Streisand's mother. Yeah. Now, here's... I watched it just a couple months ago, actually. It's an awful thing to look back in your life and uh, realize you've settled. I always felt I had more time. I was, uh, I mean, now I, inside, I, I feel young, like a kid, that it's just the beginning. I have everything ahead of me, but I don't. Now, here is my little bit of trivia. That is the only movie 
for which Lauren Bacall was ever nominated for an acting Oscar. Really? Mm-hmm. She never stands up in that film, by the way. She's only standing in one, oh. in one and when she's at the wedding of her daughter, every every time, everything else she's sitting down. <laughs> it was a short part. I thought she was phenomenal. I so wish she had won that year, but it went to Juliette Binoche for The English Patient. Oh, well, there you go. In 2010, the Academy, they did give Lauren Bacall an honorary award in recognition of her central place in the golden age of motion pictures. There you go. That's nice that they did that. Um, all right, I'm going to move on to the Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. Oh. 2002, uh, Sandra Bullock and Ellen Burstyn. And the reason I'm picking it is because I think the mother-daughter relationship between Sandra and her mother is just pivotal to so many mother-daughter relationships where she just wouldn't even speak to her. There had been so much bad blood between them. Oh my God, that's her. Do not pick up the phone. Please don't pick up the phone. Is she there? Mama? (laughs) Then all of a sudden, something's unveiled, uh, you know, revealed about her mother's history that brings it all together, brings it all to light in this really way that helps Sandra Bullock understand that her mother's a product of her history, not Sandra's history. The great mother-daughter relationships in my mind are when the child recognizes that their mother's history is different than their own, and thus they are different. And I just I just think it's a great movie. I really love it. It's a little long, a little long. And also, the the elderly people who are all yayas, the friends uh, of, of Ellen's, Um, that support her and have for however many years. God, what a group. It's so fun. I loved that book. Okay, what's your next? Where do you want to go? Okay, this is my TV show one. I loved Stockard Channing on The Good Wife. New Sunday. At least you open the door. It's my mother. In The Good Wife's family. Hi. Hi. There's no such thing. I brought bagels. We're in here. Oh, dear God. As privacy. Alicia has taken a lover. I want to see. Let me see. No. The Good Wife final season continues. It is Sunday, right? Sunday. That scene alone, just thinking about it, it was towards the end of the series where Juliana Margulies' character is getting sued, and there is a process server at the door, and you hear Stockard Channing shout from the kitchen, come on in, we've got bagels. (laughs) I loved her on that show. I thought she really brought a whole extra dimension. Wait, you mean her mother-in-law? Stockard Channing was Juliana Margulies' mother, but the one who played her mother-in-law was also a great, great part, the one who played Jackie. Well, it's so funny because in the first three years of the series, I didn't see her mother. I didn't see Stockard Channing. I mean, she's played so many mothers. She's a mother on the West Wing. Of, yep. I mean, a lot of mothers in that woman. Pulls Especially together. considering she started out as Rizzo on Greece. <laughs> Who, <laughs> Who saw that no coming? No one ever thought she was going to be a mother. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, and my last one. You're gonna okay. Sit back and take note. I'm putting on a seatbelt because I'm going okay. to your side of the pike oh, here. Oh, okay? I, I don't even know what that means, but okay. Okay, I'm going to go to Imitation of Life. Do you know it? No, and that's my okay, side. So I don't even know it. <laughs> okay, I think I saw it in maybe 1968 or something. It was very pivotal to me. That but might explain how I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you are such a bitch. <laughs> Okay. It was done in 1959. It was Douglas Sirk's last film. And it's about these two mothers that, um, well, they come together because they have difficult daughters. So Lana Turner 
plays Laura Meredith, and she's this you know aspiring actress and isn't speaking to her daughter. And Annie Johnson, who's played by Juanita Moore, um, is a woman of color, and it's her black maid. And the two women like get this close relationship that goes on for years and years and years, and it's it's definitely got this undercurrent of race and class tension and. But it, keep in mind, it came out in 1959 when that wasn't exactly the main topic of conversation around the dinner tables the way it is now. And it was really moving to me to uh, to see the very different points of view from these two classes. And, and there's like, there's this this power dynamic that is so very clear between between um, Lana Turner and um, and Juanita Moore, and you really see who has the power, and and that you know that there's limits to the kind of friendship you can have when one person has more power than the other. Mm-hmm. And um, and also, what's interesting is Juanita Moore's daughter is very light skinned, so she can pass as white and wants to. Are oh, you happy, honey? Are you finding what you really want from somebody else? I'm white. White. White! <laughs> Does that answer you? I guess so. Then please, Mama, will you go? And never do this again. And if by accident we should ever pass on the street, please don't recognize me. It's a crier. It's a great movie. And and I checked to make sure. I didn't want to use it if it's nowhere, but you can watch it on Amazon. It's only two ninety nine. So give yourself a Mother's Day present and watch this movie. Well, I'll have to check it out. I want you to tell me how impressed you are. Okay. It'll be my Mother's Day gift to you, Hollister. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. For my last one, I'm going with Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. So I know I go to the hills. <laughs> Why did you pick that? I and mean, besides, it what is mother? Kind of mother funny. Tr- the sound of music, they have no mother. Well, I thought, you know, in this day and age of blended families, a stepmother with a guitar definitely counts. Where she's She's only a stepmother for ten minutes. And it's a two and a half hour film. You know, but she ends up marrying Christopher uh, Plummer. I don't uh, <laughs> She's their mother forever all right, after. All right, the queen you know of Whatever the blended moves family. You on this Mother's Day. Mary okay. Poppins in the Alps. The sound of music, though I do think you know i thought it was supposed to be about mother-daughter relationships i'm not quite sure i'm there but oh they're okay. all her new kids but you know the funniest thing about that movie is wait did you have to reach to find that did you have trouble thinking of movies i just i liked the tone of it you know oh okay um you know right. where well, she like was the like music. the good advocate for them where the captain was always running around blowing the whistle but the thing that i find very funny is geographically where they filmed their escape they were actually quote unquote escaping back into Germany, climbing yeah. over the Bavarian Alps. So they were kind of headed the wrong way. packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. So happy Mother's Day to one and all who are mothers. But those are the movies I chose, okay? I know you think you did. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. Okay. Let's move on now to Goliath, who came to us via... Vera from Chicago. A I know. huge thank you to Vera. Yeah, really. Also, considering the entire first season had played out and I'd never heard about it on Amazon, it's really shocking <laughs> that she had to bring it to us. But, you know, William Hurt with a clicker... And then Billy Bob Thornton. How could we not want to watch this? Oh, my goodness. Let alone Nina Arianda. She gave one of the best live performances I've ever seen in my life, where she went on to win the Tony for Venus and Fur. Maria Bello. It has got a packed cast. Ever since I took this case... 
weird stuff's happening to me. Are you Billy McBride? Huh? The Billy McBride. He was one of the best trial lawyers ever. What happened? Michelle left, and that's when the bottom fell out. The script is amazing. You know, it could be, each one of those episodes could be a movie. That's how well it was done and, and how rich it was, both in cinematography and direction in acting. But William Hurt with the clicker. I mean, it's hashtag Hurt with a clicker. I mean, you know, that click, click, click clicker that you used to get at the, you know, it, 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 it's just amazing. It's like the Hurt Locker. There's one of the top three law firms in the world. And then there's us. Dog has to stay down. Billy created this firm. I created this firm. Vera pointed out to us, which was an immediate draw for me. She said, quote, TV drama guru David E. Kelly has done it again. This mystery slash legal drama is fantastic. Yeah, it is. And this is another collaboration between David E. Kelly and Jonathan Shapiro, both of whom were lawyers in real life. So they collaborated together on The Practice, on Boston Legal. Jonathan Shapiro wrote a book called, it's a memoir, called Liars, Lawyers, and the Art of Storytelling, which was put out by the American Bar Association. After seeing Goliath, I'm going to have to check out his book. Oh, for sure you will. I mean, absolutely. But that's such a good lead into the fact that when Billy Bob Thornton, by the way, I don't, I, I don't know if you can really be a great actor with the name Billy Bob. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I feel like, you know, those two, those double whammy names, I don't, it just doesn't work for me. But anyway, when asked why he did it, here's what he said. He said, um, a lawyer's trying to convince a jury and an actor's trying to convince an audience. I'd always wanted to play a lawyer, but mainly I wanted to play a guy who's had to fight his way back from nowhere. I certainly related to this character. He's definitely right. The art of litigation, it's all about storytelling. You have to connect with your jury. And Hollister, you know me and Billy Bob Thornton. In prior roles, I've always found him... A little creepy, you know? Yeah, he is a little creepy. Well, in this, I can really see his dysfunctional charm. When he smiles, I I see the charm in this. I do. You drank too much? It's not accurate. I drank just the right amount. What happened on the boat? They're hiding something big here. Well, you know, he also has this sort of laissez-faire way of getting, you know, of of questioning the people he's interviewing to find to find where he wants to go with it. I I, I just think the the writing for him is brilliant, but his delivery of it is equal to the writing itself. It's really really excellent. So I was thinking of you when I was watching the pilot because you know a couple podcasts ago we were discussing the art of writing a pilot, how challenging it is. When Goliath opens, it was a great yep. visual way of meeting his character. When he oh. steps out of that motel room, puts on the sunglasses, is walking by the other motel doors, and he picks up chicken or something off the 
room service tray, and then yeah. he steals someone else's newspaper. And then not, he steps in, in dog do. Yes, you know, it's like, like it, you can't, it you doesn't know, get better than not that. Not a word has been spoken, and you already know who this guy is. Exactly. Yeah. But also that was shot, that sequence was shot brilliantly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a pretty long opening with no words. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's just excellent. Also, they've signed on for season two. There was some conversation about whether that was going to happen or not. And I think probably it must've been around whether people were willing to sign a contract for another year. I mean, I don't know. No one said, but now it's definite. They're going to a second season as well. In the pilot, I also totally thought of you from our list of six a couple weeks ago, because did you notice what movie Billy Bob Thornton was watching in his motel room? Uh, I did at the time, and now I've forgotten. Gene Hackman and Hoosiers, which oh. you cited. <laughs> and I love the way he says that he's sitting there and he knows how it ends, but he can't help himself. He's saying, please, please, please don't get thrown out of another game. I mean, his delivery of great lines is brilliant. It's just brilliant. And then when his daughter comes into the bar and he really wants her to go to college in Indiana, and he says, if you go to a landlocked college, you'll study. There's some <laughs> great touches of humor yeah. in this and the dialogue that they deliver yep. beautifully. And by the way, it needs the humor. It's very dark. And even the shooting is dark. You know, it, It's almost like they have this filter on it that everything's at, at night. And so when you do step into the light, it's jarring. Mm-hmm. He will turn this into David and Goliath. Step out of the vehicle, sir. Okay. Sir, turn around and put your hands behind your back. <laughs> your ex-husband needs to learn some boundaries. If you had asked me, could David E. Kelly come up with another permutation on a legal thriller? He's definitely done it here where they hire a hooker <laughs> to write their complaint. Where, you know, <laughs> Nina Arianda is also a I don't real think estate she's a broker. Hooker. I think that's definitely not. She was a lady of the night. <laughs> a only. lady of the night. Okay. You know, William Hurt playing the crypt keeper. With the clicker. I mean, William with Hurt clicker. with the clicker. And then, like... you know, this firm, Cooperman McBride, where his ex, Maria Bello, still works, it was definitely reminiscent of the circle that we just discussed last week, where it was that cult-like And how easily presence. she lies to him. How easily she lies to him. You know, but I think we really do love to watch the lone cowboy going up against the behemoth, which I think yeah. is why it's so fun to see Billy Bob Thornton go up against his ex-firm that yeah. he helped found. I, I just think it's great. I think it's not to be missed. Not to be missed. So thank you, Vera. We're so grateful that you listened to Screen Thoughts, because if not, we wouldn't know about Goliath. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, and so please keep sending us your suggestions, screenthoughts yeah. at gmail.com. We do. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we <laughs> okay. We agreed to go see the dinner. Actually, we didn't even agree to go see the dinner. I sent you the dinner and said we're going to go see the dinner, and I have a <laughs> major confession to make. I went to dinner rather than seeing the dinner. <laughs> we were going to... My intention, intention, I have always told everyone in the world, intention matters most to me. What was your intention? My intention was to go to a dinner, have a quick bite with a friend and then go to the movie. Unfortunately for you, the dinner went longer than our ability to get into the movie. So you saw it though, right? Hollister, all I can say is I am bathed in relief that you did not waste two hours of your oh, life. Really? It looks so good in the trailer. Movie. Thank you. I loved the trailer. I enjoyed the book. I thought it was a little gimmicky, but it certainly knew how to build a crescendo and keep you in suspense. It did look like there was some great you know, conflict going on there. Yes, well, kudos to that trailer cutter. <laughs> I'm not going. Oh, it takes three months to get a reservation to this place. I just don't want to be with these people. 
It sounds super exclusive and sexy. It's like going to France. During the German occupation, maybe. <laughs> so it's based on the best-selling Dutch novel by Hermann Koch. It's sold two and a half million copies. It's been translated into 42 languages. And just to give you an idea of how bad this adaptation was, Hermann Koch, who wrote the book, he went to the premiere in Berlin and he skipped the after party. He did? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. He skipped it because he had no desire to talk to the director or anyone attached to it. So this was actually the third adaptation of his book. There was a Dutch uh, adaptation. Well, maybe the book's the problem, not the movie. No, no. There was a Dutch adaptation and then an Italian adaptation. And this is his quote. Ready? That after party would have been rather awkward. What would I have done? Shake hands with everybody and tell them I hated their movie? Okay, well... <laughs> Yeah, the Dutch are not known for their honesty. I'm sort of surprised to hear that. I agreed with everyone. They're so word. polite. They're always so polite, you know? So, huh. You know, in the opening three minutes, I still had very high hopes for this movie. It was a beautiful visual opening, beautiful scenes of the food. And then they cut to the teenagers playing their video games. There was an interesting opening sequence where you meet Laura Linney in a mirror where Steve Coogan is behind her and she's getting ready for them to go to this dinner. Mr. and Mrs. Loman have not arrived yet. Oh, yes, we have. You want to see our driver's license? I'm his brother. Of course. Right this way. Okay. <laughs> Two points on this. One is I have not yet forgiven Steve Coogan for Philomena. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to go back there again? Oh, my God. I got to tell you, the movie, this adaptation... They skewered the book. They took out everything that was good about the book. They injected parts that torpedoed it. They made Steve Coogan's mm. character so mentally ill from the get-go that as you're reading the book, I thought there was actually suspense and doubt. And it starts out where a nation has just been, their attention has been grabbed by the most horrific of all crimes, but they don't yet know that it's their children who've committed it. In the movie version, they had no respect for the big screen being such a visual medium that the crime was too big for the screen. And then because they put everything on the table at the very beginning, there was no suspense. Yeah. Toast? To the children. To health. To getting through this dinner in one piece. Cheers. What about the acting, though? Was the acting any good? The acting... You couldn't tell because the script was so bad and honestly yeah, the okay. plot was so torpedoed. It was written for the big screen and directed by Oren Moverman, who's originally from Israel. And Hollister, this is actually kind of interesting. He wrote a movie that you loved, Love and Mercy. Uh -huh. He wrote The Messenger, for which he was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, great movie. He wrote I'm Not There, where Kate Blanchett and many others play Bob Dylan. And for this movie, The Dinner, he was originally brought on to write a script that Kate Blanchett was going to direct. <laughs> but She was? I didn't know she, she even wanted to. She was going to direct this, but she, quote, moved on to other acting projects. I think maybe if she got her hands on the script they used. So that's when Oren himself decided to direct it. He, If anyone has read the book and you expect it to be like the book, they butchered the ending. I really, I have nothing good to say about it. it. Actually, I, I don't even know that people will be able to go see it because I think it did so badly this first week out that it's, uh, I think they're going to probably not even show it anywhere. So Okay, mm -hmm. so. I just give it a big old 
skip. However, okay, now I feel now I feel worse because sometimes when you are so negative on a film, I like find a way to you know to to make it nicer. I'm just saying that maybe um, I would have found some redeeming feature. So maybe I'll go see it this week just so I can say, okay, in relationship to whatever, because, wow, this is really, I've never heard you this strongly negative I on a film. I was so disappointed. Um, yeah, I'm so sorry. to try to end on a positive note, this was the third movie in which both Laura Linney and Richard Gere appeared. And I've always enjoyed both well, of them. Well, Richard Gere, two movies in two weeks. I mean, we have to give him that, right? That's right. Yep. Yes. So I thought I might put this forward as two blast from the past films your hashtag blast from the past film okay okay the first by the way it's our hashtag blast from the past but anyway go ahead but it was your brilliant idea okay Uh, okay the first would be primal fear from 1996 where they play lawyers and exes and this was the movie i happened to have watched that a month ago really and yeah and you know what it holds up it definitely holds up there you i think it made ed norton's career it put his name on the map and that's a movie that i think really knew how to build doubt and suspense and surprise show both sides of an argument and really introduce a psychologically flawed character I gotcha. Go Absolutely. And the other hashtag blast from the past film, another one with Laura Linney and Richard Gere, would be the Mothman Prophecies from 2002. So go see either of those films if you haven't already. And then go to dinner afterward. <laughs> and you know, Hollister, one last thing. You know what? I sort of, I just was smart enough and knew not to you go. You knew. You knew. Watch the trailer. You know, that's good enough. But he even took the chapter headings from the book, um, which were the different courses of the meal. So I saw, all the I way, saw that they were, do- yeah, I saw yeah. he was doing it. I and never liked that anyway. I always think it's interruptive. Aperitif. Chapter one. We were going out to dinner. By the time they got to dinner, I was like, could these people please just stop eating? Guess who's not coming to dinner, which should, maybe you know, should have been what? We all wanted out. We'll stay private. After tonight, it'll all be over. And now this is the great irony. In an interview, the writer-director, Oren Moverman, said that the opening credits of the movie, this food scene, which I really liked, he said, quote, I consider that the low point of my career, (laughs) shooting food. I was just sitting there. It took forever to light those ice cream balls. (laughs) Hollister, it might have been the low point for him, but it was the high point. Of the movie. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yes. So you know what? I, they're going to call you up and they're going to cry and say they wish you had been a little more generous. You know, I'm going to try to reach out to Herman Koch and we could form a little support group for what they did okay, to his Okay, so book. clearly I made a mistake because I did see another movie, which I should have told you to go see. This beautiful, fantastic. Bella Brown. There was nothing normal about the girl. She grew into the oddest of oddballs. Just her and her books. That sounds promising. Did it live up to its name? It's the best fairy tale I've ever seen, but it's not really a fairy tale. And it's like the secret garden meets Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It is just (laughs) unbelievably rich in so many ways. Here's the thing. So there's this orphan who's like kept warm by ducks, you know, who struggles for the rest of her life until we meet her. You know, to keep her distance from people, you know, but she ends up having to fix her garden, long story short, not going into it. And then she ends up making friends with um, 
and finding her way through those friendships and through the consistency of her life. So she works in this library, which makes you want to quit your job and work in a library, even though the librarian's really mean to her. But anyway, it's so funny. It's funny, haha. It's funny, laugh out loud. And and I guess the actors will blow your mind. The orphan's name is Bella Brown. Like, first of all, I'm thinking of changing my name to Bella Brown. I love saying it. I love the name. I love when they called her Bella. Hi, I'm Bella Brown. No, it's a great name, right? It sounds a little bit like Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Okay, but it's also a little whimsical. You know, hey, Bella Brown. Do you know what I mean? But she's not whimsical, but she becomes whimsical. But also, she's Lady Sybil. She is from Downton Abbey. And you would never... Have rec- you would never recognize her, you know. And also, here's the thing about her: she knows how to be alone. She knows how to act alone, like the only person in the room, or even when she's with others, the only person in the room. I've never seen somebody who has alone presence the way she does. Hashtag alone presence for her. So she's really, really good. And then there's Tom Wilkinson. Oh, he's always good. It's a totally blank canvas, chance to create your own masterpiece. Okay, wait a minute. I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to announce it here. Ready? Mm-hmm. I'm leaving Kevin Spacey's to marry Tom. <laughs> that okay? is awesome, Hollister. Just know, in time I, for you know, Mother's I'm going to tell Kevin, please don't mention it until I get in touch. But <laughs> Can you, you know, wait till after he hosts so the Tonys? good. He's like, you know, sh- he, hashtag show me your pain. I mean, without going on and on about it. like He can show <laughs> you his pain and you don't have to listen to him explaining it. You just get to know it's there. But the, but the real breakout guy is Andrew Scott, who steers this film, I think, sort of away from, uh, I guess it would be the borders of Maudlin. You know, he was, he was inspector. He was in Saving Private Ryan. Who even heard of him, right? But he was. And, and we know how um, much you loved Spectre. But the ending is brilliant, and the journey is worth, you know, it was funny. When the lights went up, um, I think there were, I went in the afternoon during the week and, and to a theater in a small town, not, not a lot of people. Everyone was crying, of course, except for me. Um, <laughs> and I stayed for the credits, but, you know, I, I just was too excited about it. But everybody, you didn't want to leave the moment, and you recognized... Um, you recognize the joy and the whimsicalness of, of dreaming and believing and hoping and all of those things. And it's just so good. Wow. Yeah. You know, Car- it turns out Carrie Mulligan, I looked up a couple of things. Carrie Mulligan was supposed to play the part and then she dropped out in 2009. So it took another seven years to get it made. And um, don't miss this film. Do not miss this beautiful, fantastic, because... It's all of those things. You know, it really is. Promise me you're going to see this film. I will definitely see it. Definitely. Promise? I, okay. I de- yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, go see it or I'm not speaking to you. And now we can watch and talk about our last movie that we saw together. Their finest. Welcome to the Ministry of Information Film Division. Mr. Churchill is persuaded that film can show that this is a war America should be fighting. If we're to capture the public imagination and their trust, we need a story to inspire a nation. 
I know MTV wants us to move away from gender, but I was so struck by how many women were involved in the making of Their Finest. It was based on a novel, Their Finest Hour and a Half, written by Lisa Evans. It's actually based on a real person, Diana Morgan. So there you go. It's a woman, a real-life character, a Mm -hmm. female novelist. Another woman adapted it for the big screen, who's a TV writer, Gabi Chiappi. She wrote uh, for Shetland and EastEnders. And it was directed by the Danish director, Luna Scherfik, who brought us mm-hmm. an education, which was nominated for three Oscars, starring Carrie Mulligan and Rosamund Pike. She did One Day with Anne Hathaway, and she did Italian for Beginners. Right. And the composer was Rachel Portman, who we discussed recently. She's the Oscar-winning composer of Emma who did Ethan Frome, Mona Lisa right, Smile, Right, the one that had Joy like Lund a three-second spot in score. Exactly. You know? <laughs> She's yeah. done it again with a beautiful score for their finest. Well, the reason I texted you after I left and said you have to go see this and we have to do this review together is because you often speak of, and I, and I guffaw at, your <laughs> theory that, you know, um, romantic scenes of old are sometimes more romantically based than... Um, then now when you get into bed really quickly and they show too much and everything else and less is more. Okay. All right. So say it, so say it succinctly. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I, I'm looking, I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is what O'Toole is talking about. This is the way she wants a romance to unfold, you know, uh, with innuendos and, and little bits and all the, you know, so I, 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 and was I right? You were right, although I could have okay. done without what I will just refer to as the British Christmas special plot twist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh. honestly, there was a similar plot development in one day also mm-hmm. directed by Luna Scherfik, um, where I didn't really see that coming. That did yeah, catch she, you know, me by surprise. She loves the holidays, clearly. But, <laughs> but it's a dramedy. And, you know, Bill Nighy, you know, oh. once again, he is the comic relief exactly every single time, mm-hmm. exactly where it's needed. Uncle Frank, a shipwreck of a man. Sixties, looks older. We all have a part to play in defeating Hitler. Not this part, it's a corpse role. He's dead before the end of Act Three. What a great role for him. I enjoyed him in every single scene. Oh, the cast, I really enjoyed his scenes with Jake Lacey, who played the American. I thought the two of them together were so funny. Jake Lacey has been in two movies we've done podcasts about, How to Be Single and Miss Sloan. He was great here. In fact, everyone in this cast has appeared in a movie we have done a podcast about. Well, that's probably how they got the job to this movie. I think so. All right, what is what is with World War II movies? Okay, there have been a lot of wars since World War II, and mm-hmm. World War II still stands out as the as the war around which major movies are made. I mean, mm-hmm. what is that about? I think because it was a war that happened before television, people seem to view it with more clarity. Maybe it was the last honorable war, really, or something, you know? But it's still, it's like at the forefront, and there's just something about it. The other thing is, as somebody who's in filmmaking yourself, um, did you like seeing behind-the-scenes look at the industry back then? I loved it. Okay, I thought you would. This film really shows the power of a movie to get people behind a cause, to inspire people. It was a propaganda movie, and it, 
And yet, you know, when they're given the two guiding principles that their script to get Americans and Brits behind the war, the two guiding principles the studio gives them are authenticity and optimism. I thought those principles are still valid today if you want to hit a movie. Well, they're not, unfortunately. Would it be they were? But But in a movie, if you want a movie to be a hit movie, go for authenticity and optimism. (laughs) Well, it's funny because they interviewed some of the cast members who said, look, uh, what was really profound for them was how propaganda that's happening now has zero respect for the truth, whereas this movie shows that they had tremendous respect for the truth and, in fact, wanted real stories to show. But the other thing that's well, so interesting is... I think tremendous respect for the truth might be overstating it. Since, well, they you were know, supposed she goes, to. In other words, she, she was supposed to go sisters. interview the girls and make sure they, in fact, had... But, and they hadn't, know. and the story well, never really lied. happened. I mean, she did. She yeah. lied. Yeah, she they lied. never made it. They made up the whole story. But, but the industry still, as a whole was also trying to, you know, pitch that which is... I mean, I just don't know that they would have agreed with some of the false things that come out of the world today. But And um, yet, the movie that they made in the movie inspired those two sisters to then actually enlist and become I know, mechanics, I love which that. shows I love the power that. of the movie. They became mechanics yeah. like QE2 in a royal yep. night out. I know, right? You forget that realism back then, it, when they were on this boat that clearly, as they're filming it, is not really on the ocean. and But you're in that moment, and the audience didn't care that it wasn't totally realistic. Do you know what I mean? And yet it might have been more realistic back then. Because Maybe, now but, we're so yeah. used to a hyper-realistic world yeah. that things today seem a little ludicrous. It scared people back then. Yeah. You know, I, I, I thought it was I thought it was just amazing. Um, so I so I was staying with my I was in the Hamptons last weekend and I was staying with my friend Sue, and she had happened to have seen it the week before. So we're talking about it, and I won't tell you who dies, but someone dies in the film toward the end. And it's a surprise death. Like you're not, it's, you're not anticipating it. And she said, well, I I think I know the reason why he had to die. And I said, why? (laughs) Pray tell, do tell. And she was so brilliant. She said that here's this woman who was finally finding her own independence in the world when the world didn't value women who were independent. Mm -hmm. And she was finding her independence. And if she'd ended up with him, if he'd stayed alive, she would have just become an adjunct member of his team rather than her own independent self. I totally agree with Sue. I That's thought Sue that was so smart. I hadn't even thought it. Yeah. Viewer. Well, you mm-hmm. know Sue, right. We've done the Hampton uh, Film Festival with her. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. And so I don't think I've given anything away that makes you not want to see the film and you'll forget in the middle of it anyway. And yet all these things that she was up against being a screenwriter in the industry then are just as valid today, you know, but perhaps even more over then. So for example, the fact that they refer to female dialogue in a movie as slop. Mrs. Cole will need someone to write the slop. Slop. Girl talk. Women's dialogue. Well, actually, in the movie, they referred to it as slop. But when Diana Morgan, who was a screenwriter who this was made about, um, they called it nausea dialogue. Wow. Yeah, they changed it for the movie to slop. But the real term back then was nausea dialogue, which was really female dialogue. Wow. The fact that she has to fight to have her female characters have any kind of action in the movie. And it was also interesting to me that in the movie, Jake Lacey playing the American, he's the only real soldier 
in the movie, but he was least believable on screen well, as a soldier. And that's where Bill Nye really shines. I mean, <laughs> He's just amazing in that section. a vehicle for Bill Nye. And all of them, Gemma Arterton, who we talked about recently in our podcast about 100 Streets, where she played Idris Elba's wife. She was great in this, vibing kind of a Lady Mary-like character. Sam Claflin, who we talked about in Me Before You. Too long, lose half. Which half? The half you don't need. A very different part here. Jack Houston, who played Ellis Cole, he was in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Richard E. Grant was in Jackie. Jeremy Irons was in this. Yeah, it's an independent film, but it certainly did very well, huh? And it was fun to see all these actors who we had just seen in such different vehicles really show their chops. But to me, that also underscored the power of actors and what they can do, where yeah, they bring completely absolutely. different characters to life. So did I make up for my the dinner with this? You absolutely did. And the dialogue in this... You and me given opportunities only because young men are gone. But to turn our back on those opportunities, wouldn't that be giving death dominion over life? They say also in the movie, life was so precarious, it would be a shame to waste it. So is that your favorite line? Give death dominion over life? It's definitely there at the top of my list. Okay, now do you want to ask me what mine was? Of course I do, Hollister. What was your favorite line? (laughs) Oh, it's so funny you should ask that. But um, Okay, so she's breaking up with her husband, who's really not her husband. Mm-hmm. And he's a painter and a very self-absorbed, I'm fabulous painter. Okay, so he says, I should have painted you walking away as she's going to get ready to walk out. Mm-hmm. And she turns to him. This is a great feminist moment. Ready? She says, you shouldn't have painted me so small. Uh-huh. And then it she was, turns around and walks away. It's a great line. Great yeah. line. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. another one that I thought was very insightful was when Sam Claflin's character was talking about why people are so drawn to movies, especially in times that can be very low. People like films because stories are structure. When things turn bad, it's still part of a plan. There's a point to it. And they do touch on how many people were going to the movies back then, more than today, because TV had not yet been invented, you know, so millions of people are going no, to mil- the movies. I, it was bizarre millions. how many people, yeah, exactly. Meanwhile, I laughed out loud, though, when they were talking about the Americans' teeth and how white they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he. by the way, he was brilliantly cast, pretty boy, you know, Jake definitely. Lacey did a great job. You know, the only thing about this movie... That I'm not even going to say it's a negative. It's just I had a problem with it. I could not remember the title of this movie to save my life. I know. The title of the book I know is long for a movie title, but their finest hour and a half actually goes more towards what the movie's about, you know, the making of a 90-minute movie. Uh, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a title person, and I too, ha- I mean, but I, I, I saved my stub because I was afraid I was going <laughs> to re- forget it. And it's not playing everywhere, so you're going to have to look for it, but it's definitely worth the watch. Absolutely. You didn't really have to smoke that thing, Doc. I mean, couldn't you just mime? I can mime smoking. I can't mime smoke. So what a week it was. We had great films. And then, of course, you chose that thing, the dinner. I don't know why you did that, but, you know. You know, I think, like me, you should have gone out to dinner rather than to see the dinner. I definitely should have, but anybody in their finest would have told me to just keep calm and carry on. Well, let's just make up for it next week, and I'll take you to dinner. Excellent, and I will wish you a very happy Mother's Day. (laughs) 